When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves up together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, Israel, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow there shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised you I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory, or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you, that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go up before us. As for this Moses, 
the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. We do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered round him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate, from to the gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up, before, go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now, go, lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go, shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people, because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onwards. Father God, as we come to your word now, please help us to learn from this story and not to fall into pride and idolatry, but to trust in you and to stand firm. Do you ever think, I got this? Maybe you're starting a project at home or at work, and you're on top of it. I got this. Maybe you've got exams, you've done the revision, you're ready. I got this. It's okay. I got this. What about the Christian life? Maybe, maybe you've just become a Christian and it's, it's great. I got this. 
Or maybe you've been following Jesus for a, a long time, and although there are some downs, overall, you're doing okay. I got this. Well, whether or not you think like this, today's passage is for you. We, um, we were reminded last week that however difficult uh, some of these passages might seem, they're written for our instruction. Uh, let me read uh, 1 Corinthians 10, uh, verses 6 and 7 where Paul quotes this passage, Exodus 32. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Exodus 32 is an example to Christians not to do as the Israelites did, not to desire evil, not to worship idols. And, and maybe you think, well, of, of course. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to worship a, a golden calf or, or go to orgies. I, I know that's wrong. And I'm doing okay. I got this. But Paul goes on in, in verses 11 and 12. Now, these things happen to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of ages has come. That means us today. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. If you think you stand, watch out. If you think, I got this in the Christian life, be careful that you don't fall. Learn from the mistakes that the Israelites made. So let's, um, let's go back to Exodus 32 to see what it is we need to learn from. So we're, in, um, we're on page 86, um, up to the beginning of chapter 33, and the story of the golden calf. I've got uh, two main headings, the sin of the people and the anger of God, the mediation of Moses and the mercy of God. Looks like it's really four points. I'm just trying to get away calling it two. And then there's applying this today, which is really a third, could be a fifth. Firstly, the sin of the people and the anger of God. The sin of the people and the anger of God. We're going we're to see just how sinful people are and how terrible sin is. So let's recap uh, where we've got to. God's rescued his people. He's brought them safely to Mount Sinai where he's given them his law. He's confirmed his covenant. And, and back in chapter 24, verse 7, his people solemnly declared... All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And then Moses goes up the mountain to receive God's plans for the tabernacle. Forty days and nights, um, he receives the the careful, the ordered plans uh, for how, how the perfectly holy God can dwell among his people. God is bringing his people home to enjoy new life with him. And we might have found... Seven chapters about the tabernacle, a bit much. But the very length and the detail emphasize the the importance and the solemnity of what's happening. This is what it's all for. God is to be with his people, which is why chapter 32 is so shocking. So while God is explaining how he's going to be at home with his people, those people have given up on God. Verse 1, they, um, 
they seem to think that Moses is too slow to come back, so they've given up on him, and they want new gods. It's, it's like a groom jilting his bride while he's waiting at the front of the church. There's ten past already. She's been ages. Fetch me a bridesmaid instead. Or imagine at the coronation uh, uh, a couple of weeks back, which is probably the most solemn and, and serious ceremony that we've seen for years. The months of planning, right down to the last detail. But there was a slight delay before the service started. William and Kate were late and things were held up briefly. So imagine inside the cathedral. The people are getting restless. The king's late. What's going on? They gather around the, the archbishop. Justin, we don't, uh, we don't want Charles after all. Make us a new king out of all this gold stuff we've got here. That'd be pretty mad. But it doesn't stop there. They, they feast on, on quiche, probably. And Katy Perry starts singing. And it's soon getting pretty raucous. And the careful plans for the coronation have been thrown into turmoil. And a service of utmost seriousness has been turned into an orgy. Because that's what's going on here in Exodus. Aaron takes their gold in verses uh, 2 to 4, and he makes an idol. They celebrate with a feast. And and verse 6, they eat and drink and rise up to play. And they're not playing Monopoly. It means debauchery. In verse 25... Um, they've broken loose. Or in the King James, it translates as they're naked. They've shed their clothes along with their inhibitions. They've thrown off God, his law, his order, and they're running riot. The contrast is deliberate. From, from those painstaking seven chapters of, of Moses in the presence of God, establishing the careful, the ordered way in which God can dwell with his people, to this sudden splurge of sinful sensuality. It's so quick and it's so shocking. Let's look a bit more at how it all unravels. It seems that it starts with insecurity, with with a lack of trust in God and his appointed leader. So in verse 1, they they want God to go before us through, through the hostile desert. They want someone to lead them and protect them, but they can't see God and Moses isn't there. But they've all heard God's word as he spoke through Moses, as he gave his law and his covenant. They've seen God in action for them. They saw the plagues and the the parting of the Red Sea. They followed the pillars of cloud and fire. And they're still eating manna. You see, they're rejecting God while they're still enjoying God's goodness to them. They've lost faith in the God who's shown his love for them time and again in word and deed. They want something tangible, something here and now that they can touch and see. And so they get Aaron to to make an idol. They reject the true God and they make a parody. And everything about their worship of this idol is a a parody of of true worship. So in, in chapter 25... The gold was meant to be collected to make the ark and the the lampstand. And now here in verse 4, it's for an idol. They claim that this thing uh, represents gods who brought them out of Egypt, rather than worshipping the true God who really did bring them 
out of Egypt. Back in chapter 24, they, they made burnt and peace offerings to the Lord, and, and, and then their leaders saw God and, and ate and drank. It was a glorious picture of, of enjoying the presence of God. And, and yet here in verse 6, they make similar offerings, eating and drinking, but in the presence of an idol. And they plunge into immorality. And what about Aaron? He's, he's God's chosen high priest. He's Moses' right-hand man. But he caves, caves into pressure from the mob. He makes the idol. And then, verse 5, he builds an altar and declares a feast to the Lord. He, he seems to be trying to have it both ways. Um, perhaps he's trying to avoid breaking the first commandment um, by, by pre- pretending he's still worshipping Yahweh. But if so, he's, he's broken the second by making a statue of him. And the third, by taking his name in vain. You see, whether they're worshipping a false god or falsely worshipping the true god, it comes to the same thing. They've rejected God because they didn't remember his deeds and his words. They didn't trust him. Psalm 106 says, They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their saviour, who had done great things in Egypt. And having exchanged God for a statue, there's no one to listen to. Even if the calf were alive, it just eats grass. It might moo, but it can't speak. And there's no way to know God or hear his will from a metal cow. So they make up their own morality, and predictably, it's perverted. Morality is twisted and consciences are seared. Look at Aaron's self-deception in in verses 21 to 24. So confronted by Moses, he passes the buck, like Adam blaming Eve. It was those sinful people. All I did, all I did was throw gold into a fire, and out came a calf. It's pathetic, it's laughable, but it's horribly tragic. See, after, after the new creation of God's people in the escape from Egypt, and the picture of the tabernacle as a, as a new Eden, here we are in a new fall. A fall that's so quick and so total. This is sin in all its ugliness. And so verses 30 to 34 ram that home. The word sin has hardly been used in Exodus so far. Even when the people grumbled after leaving Egypt, the word sin wasn't used. But here in five verses, sin, 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 seven times. See, now that God has made his covenant, now that he's given his law, now sin has come alive. And sin brings God's anger and judgment and death. Look at verse 10. God is angry. And some of us might have difficulty with that idea because we think of the the selfish way that we often get angry. But God's anger is not capricious or petty. It's a settled, constant hatred of sin. And he's right to be angry that his people have rejected their God. God who saved them. 
right to be angry that they've rejected the covenant he's just made with, with them, rejected him at the very moment that he's about to show them how he can live with his people in the land that he's giving them. So a bride arriving at her wedding to find the groom in, in the arms of a bridesmaid would rightly be angry. What would King Charles do if he'd arrived at his coronation to find an orgy in the aisles? Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer leading chants of not my king. He would rightly be angry. As king, he would have to act in judgment and punish those involved. But here in Exodus, it's so much worse because God is infinitely majestic and holy. And God cannot dial down his holiness. To sin against a holy God is an infinitely great offense. And we learn, we learn from chapters 20 to 23, sin must be punished. And the punishment is death. In verse 10, God's holiness would consume sinners. That's why in chapter 3, verses 3 to 5, he declares he, he won't go among the people because if he does, he would consume them. God's holiness and justice would destroy sinful people. And so, uh, verse 19, Moses is also rightly angry at the sin that he sees. He, he smashes the tablets with the Ten Commandments, not in a fit of, of peak, but to show that the covenant has been broken. He utterly destroys the golden calf. And having confronted his brother, he punishes the people in verses 25 to 29. Again, we might find passages like that difficult. The Levites rally to Moses and kill 3,000 of their own people. I don't know whether Moses' anger in earlier, in verses 15 to 20, had, had brought some people to repentance, but in, in verse 25, certainly some of the people were persisting in the madness of idol worship. Perhaps they were the 3,000 who were killed immediately, and, and then in verse 35, God sends a plague too. However difficult we find this, the message we need to hear is that sin is serious, and sin has consequences, and sin brings judgment and death. It is horrible. It's horrible because sin is such an affront to a holy God. Our problem is that by nature, we're sinners. We're like the Israelites. So we, we read this story of sin and judgment, and, and we're often more likely to be upset by the judgment than by the sin. But if we could see God's holiness and purity more clearly, we would be so much more horrified by the sin. And we'd wonder how God's judgment wasn't more thorough than it seems. We'd read verse 10 and we wonder why didn't God destroy all of them, start again with Moses, like he did once before with Noah. But that leads me to our second heading, and you'll be relieved, a much shorter point. The mediation of Moses and the mercy of God. The mediation of Moses and the mercy of God. Perhaps what struck you most about this passage was Moses' prayers. He prays twice, uh, verse 11 and uh, verse 31. We've just seen how Moses mediated God's anger to the people 
Here he mediates on behalf of the people to God. He prays for them. The first time uh, is, is in response to God's anger in verses 7 to 10. The covenant's been broken by the people, and so, and so God refers to them as this people, or Moses' people, a people who should be destroyed. But notice how God says this. He doesn't say, I will consume them. He says, let me alone so that it may happen. And Moses takes the hint. He won't let God alone. If he lets God alone, God will destroy the people. So Moses prays. And see what he prays. He doesn't try to excuse the people or, or justify their actions. He appeals to God's character, reputation, to God's covenant promises. He reminds God again and again that the people are God's people. If you destroy them, Lord, your enemies will think you're a failure. You've, you've fulfilled your promise to Abraham to multiply his descendants. Surely you will fulfill your promise to give them the land and keep them forever. You've promised this by your name, Lord. Your word is unbreakable. You, you don't lie, Lord. And so we're told the Lord relented. He, he withholds that final judgment. It's not that he's changed his mind as, as we do. Look, Moses is appealing to God on the very basis that God doesn't change his mind. Lord, please do what you said you'll do. Please keep your promise to keep your people and be merciful. And so God withholds final judgment. But there is still judgment. Evil is still punished. And however difficult we find the killing of the 3,000, there is a mercy there too. It is merciful to demonstrate to the people that sin must not be tolerated. It is merciful to limit the damage that sin would otherwise do if it were allowed to carry on unchecked. But Moses prays again. Judgment has been withheld, but in, in verses 31 to 34, he wants relationship to be restored. Perhaps I can make atonement, at one moment. And he asks for their forgiveness Verse 32 is remarkable, isn't it? If you will forgive them, but if not, punish me in their place. Moses wrestles with the idea that sinful people will be blotted out of God's book, that the penalty for sin is death. So if a holy God can't just ignore sin, can't just brush it under the carpet... Could Moses be punished in their place? Could he be a substitute? And the answer in verse 33 is no. Those who sin will die for their sin. But verse 34, not yet. One day, when God visits, there will be a day of judgment. Meanwhile, Chapter 33, God will continue to lead his people. Even if he won't be among them as, as they'd hoped, he will bring them to the promised land, a land of blessing. God is merciful and kind, despite their sin. And the people finally get it. That, that first declaration of God's anger when Moses broke the tablets and, and the idol, that didn't seem to turn their hearts. Aaron just made excuses and lied. It's only... 
after this announcement of God's judgment that he won't be among them, that their hearts are broken and they mourn. In verse 4, they obediently take off their ornaments in a sign of repentance. And so we're left in a, in a tension. The people want to come back to God, but they can't be with God because of their sin. When we come back to Exodus 33 in a few weeks' time, we're going to see how that tension is resolved. And the tabernacle is built. God will dwell with his people. All those chapters about the tabernacle in 25 to 31 will, will be worked out uh, in lots more chapters about the tabernacle. Chapters 35 to 40. And in between, we have this story of sin and judgment, mediation and mercy and restoration. But there's a much bigger tension than what's resolved in chapters 33 and 34 and the building of the tabernacle. And that's the ongoing question of how can sin be dealt with without the death of the sinner? That's the question we're left with in, in verse 33 and 34. And we know that the answer to that question is Jesus. Moses was never going to be able to, to bear the the sin and the punishment of the people, because he was a sinner himself. But Moses' prayer points us towards the one who really could die in our place, who could be blotted out so that we can be forgiven. To Jesus, who took our sin on himself so that when he died on the cross, he suffered the judgment that, that we should have. If we follow Jesus... That's when God visited judgment on sin. If we don't yet follow Jesus, then that judgment will fall on us. And the judgment will be even more terrible than that in Exodus 32. Because it will be final and eternal destruction away from God's presence forever. Well, let's turn to thinking about how we're going to apply this today. Perhaps the most important application of this is, is to repent like the Israelites did. Repent of our sin and to know Jesus, the, the mediator that Moses couldn't be. Jesus, the mediator who, who brings us back to God and safely into eternal life with him. But I want to think about how else we might apply this passage we do need to see how bad sin is. That's the thrust of this passage. So our next slide will show us, um, remind us of the structure of Exodus 25 to 40 and how those two long sections of, of God's beautiful order and detail, the lavish, the careful plans, the construction of the place where God can be with his people. And then... And then it's interrupted by the horrific human sin and devastation of Exodus 32. So there at the heart of the story is the problem of the human heart. And so this passage reminds us that our, our standing with God is not about our own righteousness. As we, as we look back at how we got here and we look forward to how we're going on, we need to understand our sinfulness and trust in God's grace and mercy. 
We asked at the beginning, do you think I got this? And some of you are thinking, but I don't think I do. Uh, things are pretty bad at the moment. I'm, I'm only too aware of my sin. I don't feel like I'm one of God's people at all. Keep messing up. Well, this passage is for you too. Moses um, himself talks about the events of, of this chapter, Exodus 32, in Deuteronomy 9. Know therefore that the Lord is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you're a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoke the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. They're to remember these events, to remember their failure, to remind them that their blessings from God depended utterly on his promises and not at all on their own merit, to keep them humble. As we look back to when we started to follow Jesus, I was a sinner who deserved judgment, but God in his mercy forgave me. I got this? That's absurd. I got nothing. Only God got this for me, for you. So if you're feeling like things are not going well, remember, you're standing with God does not depend on you and your goodness. As we look back, God wants us to remember that we're sinners, but sinners who've been forgiven and given new life by our merciful God. And as we look forward in our daily walk with God, we're, we still need to remember how sinful our hearts are and how good and gracious and merciful God is. We need to understand how near we are to falling, to challenge our complacency when we think, yeah, I got this. Just after the Israelites were rescued through, through the Red Sea, they grumbled against God. Just after they receive the law and the covenant, they make a golden calf. From the highest highs to the lowest lows. Perhaps we need to be especially careful when things are going okay because we tend to cruise. I got this. The shocking truth is that, is that we are like the people in Exodus 32. Exodus 32 is, is about how God's people fell. If we follow Jesus, we are God's people. That's why Paul told us in 1 Corinthians to learn from this story. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Think how they fell. The Israelites uh, forgot God's word and God's rescue. So easy for us to neglect God's word, to forget the centrality of the cross and, and Jesus' death for us. So let's, let's keep the cross and the Bible central. Let's pray that for, for our church as we seek a new vicar. When we stop listening to Jesus in his word, when we stop remembering what he did to save us, we'll stop trusting him. The Israelites stopped trusting God. And then they turn to something tangible for their security. Now, our idols are unlikely to be golden animals. But perhaps we do put our trust in other things that we can touch and feel, in the things that this world offers as security. Maybe it's money, the higher salary, the bigger bank account. That's what will keep me secure as we start a family or prepare for retirement. Maybe it's relationships, a particular person or people in your life where you find your security, your spouse, your friendship group, 
And so having found their security in the tangible, the Israelites turned from true worship to false worship. If we turn money or relationships or other good gifts from God into idols, if we turn good things into God things, we'll be worshipping false gods. And like Aaron, we can, we can try to worship the true God falsely. For Aaron, it was an altar to Yahweh in front of an idol. A feast to Yahweh that turned into an orgy. It'll be different for us, but there are many ways in which we can try to fit the true God into our preferences. And maybe we read this passage and we thought, that's not the sort of God I want to believe in. I don't like to think of God as a judge. But that's how he revealed himself. If we fall into thinking, well, I like to think of God as, we're allowing our own preferences to dictate how we think of God, how we relate to him, how we worship him, and it will be false worship because our hearts are sinful. So whether we're, we're feeling high or low, as, as we look to the weeks, the months ahead, don't say, I got this. You didn't. God did. And because of that, he's promised to keep us, and he keeps his word. We know that he's still got this. My standing before God was, was never my own doing. It was always God who did it. He saved me. He keeps me. He will keep me day by day. Paul warned us not to fall like the Israelites in, in 1 Corinthians 10. And the good news is that in Christ, we don't have to. He goes on in verses 13 um, to 14. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. If we follow Jesus, he is with us by his spirit, changing our hearts so that we don't uh, need to fall into the idolatry and immorality that the Israelites did. When we do find ourselves tempted, he will help us. So let's, let's keep praying for his strength to stand firm. Because he's got this.